This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, carbon taxes, cap and trade, what are they all about? Democracy in chains. I speak with an American academic about her deep history of the radical rights stealth plan for America and on the 100th anniversary of the First World War, a little Belgian town commemorates the days of its ravaging. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg. Medical researchers have just developed a drug that can block the development of Huntington's disease, an incurable inherited disorder leading to neuromuscular degeneration, dementia, and death. The magic molecule, a tiny strand of the nucleic acid RNA, blocks the expression of the complementary messenger RNA that translates the faulty Huntington's gene into an active protein. The sliver of synthetic RNA sticks to the rogue messenger and chops it up. The new drug will soon go to larger clinical trials. Imagine if memes acted with as much precision as molecules, you know, ideas that travel far and wide and change people's minds. Pharmacological memes would be crafted to block socially or politically noxious notions like racism, homophobia, misogyny, political supremacism, a lust for violence. They'd race to their targets through social media, glomming on and refusing to let go until the nasty idea dissolved. Inevitably, Scientists in the pay of the radical right would come up with thought drugs against altruism, social solidarity, or civic-mindedness, no doubt administered by iPhone or tablet. A foolishly fanciful idea? Perhaps not. If neural software circuits can drive sex robots and autonomous killing machines, why can't trusty smartphone companions reprogram the molecular structures of the mind? This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Your molecular structure is really something fine. A first-rate example of functional design. Those cosmic undulations are steady coming through. Your molecular structure, baby. Your cellular organization is really something choice. Electromagnetism about to make me lose my voice. Got all my circuits open, my system's reading go. Your cellular organization, baby, stop the show. I like the way I got that one in. Your molecular structure, Mose Allison. 
You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Your molecular structure is really something swell. A high-frequency modulated Jezebel. Thermodynamically, you're getting to me. Your molecular structure, baby. If there's any hope of cranking down emissions of earth-warming greenhouse gases quickly enough to stave off the worst repercussions of climate change, we have to start charging people to release them into the atmosphere, so say advocates of carbon taxes and alternative cap-and-trade proposals. To make sense of this complex topic, I spoke with Green Blues contributor Sarah Aronson. Putting a price on carbon... Sarah, what, what does this mean exactly? We, we're hearing about carbon taxes. We're hearing about cap and trade. What do we mean by putting a price on carbon? Okay, well, when you're talking about greenhouse gases that are causing climate change, basically these are mostly gases that uh, contain carbon. And carbon is the pollutant that's being released into the atmosphere. So the idea is that you want to put a price on pollution. Pollution normally uh, affects people that are far away uh, from the people that actually do the polluting. And the people that do the polluting have to be be paying for it. And climate change is already bringing about incurring enormous costs to society globally. And the idea is that if you're going to be putting carbon into the atmosphere and it's a greenhouse gas, then you've got to pay for the cost. Well, exactly. Because it's not covered in the cost of extracting, say, the fossil fuels. It's not covered in the cost of producing things. It's going up into the atmosphere, and then it's causing damage to everybody, to the whole planet. And that, that, that's what uh, economists call an externality, something that's affected, that's external to the market exchange. So by putting a price on carbon, what you're doing is you're telling people, if you're going to pollute, you're going to have to pay for X amount of pollution. And in the case of carbon pricing, you're talking about per ton of carbon. How much is it going to cost you to release that into the atmosphere? So up until now, gentlemen who I spoke with, Andrew Weaver, who is a, a well-known climatologist, climate modeler in, in British Columbia, and also the, the head of the Green Party out there, as it happens, um, has said that up till now, the atmosphere has been a dumping ground for people's pollution, not just carbon, but pollution of all sorts, and it's absolutely free. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Same thing with the oceans. If you look at, there's a classic theory by Gerard Hardin called A Tragedy of the Commons. Maybe you've heard of that. If you have a whole bunch of people and you have a shared um, a shared space and they're all able to use that space and they each benefit individually, let's say, in this case, it was a pasture he was talking about, Every single person, a shepherd, can add an extra sheep to the herd, and it benefits that shepherd, but the overgrazing is going to affect the entire pasture, and everyone's going to lose. But under that model, if nobody pays, nobody considers the effects on the aggregate on everybody, everyone's just going to keep continually adding a sheep to their herd until it gets completely overgrazed. And it's the exact same principle when it comes to carbon. We're just going to keep putting carbon into the atmosphere because the individual companies are benefiting. This was what Garrett Hardin referred to as the tragedy of the commons. Yeah, exactly. It's a classic, classic idea. Tell me, what is a carbon tax? Well, a carbon tax is one way of putting a price on carbon. There's actually two ways of doing it, carbon tax and cap and trade. Carbon tax is basically just um, making people pay for how much carbon they release. So it might, for example, be like for every ton of carbon you release into the atmosphere, you're going to pay $15. And that's actually what what, uh, Justin Trudeau is trying to do. He's trying to establish a minimum price on carbon because right now it's free. It's free to release carbon. 
And we've got carbon taxes in, in British Columbia and uh, developing one in Alberta. In British Columbia, they're charging $30 a ton. Yeah, in British Columbia. Uh, British Columbia has the highest carbon tax in the country, and that's $30 a ton. And uh, as far as Alberta, uh, I think it's going to be 20 to $30 a ton. They're, they're phasing in a carbon tax right now. They have a bit of a system where people who are large emitters, over 100,000 tons, I believe, a year, they have to gradually lower their emissions, and they're, they're, they have to pay into a fund if they're not able to do that. And they can also purchase credits. It's a bit complicated, but in 2017 or, 2017, or 2018, um, Alberta is actually phasing in a, a more global carbon tax that might cover as much as 90% of their economy. And the BC carbon tax, it's now at $30 a ton and everybody's paying. Um, uh, consumers are paying at the pump, uh, homeowners are paying in their, in their gas bills uh, based on calculations of how much CO2 is associated with burning your furnace or whatever, and industry's paying. In other words, everybody, it's, it's distributed. Is, is this right? Um, I'm not positive, but I don't think it's completely distributed because I know British Columbia and other jurisdictions do this as well. Um, there are certain industries that are very emissions intense and are also very competitive globally, have to be competitive, like the oil and gas sector. So under these schemes, often governments will exempt certain big polluters from this. And uh, uh, Ontario actually is a, new, a developing story, but they're not a carbon tax situation. But anyways, in BC, there are um, people that are exempt, and but they're also... Um, efforts in place to sort of mitigate the effects on lower income people. I don't know exactly what these efforts are. So because the BC economy has been growing all the while with a carbon tax in place. Well, all I can say is that the carbon tax has actually not been um, creating a greater burden for people price-wise because what they're doing is they're following a strategy called making it revenue neutral. So any, the, any money that the government brings in from the carbon tax, they actually give back to businesses and consumers in the form of tax cuts in other areas. So in the end, their budget is balanced. And so it's tax shifting. It's tax shifting, yeah. Whereas in other jurisdictions, uh, something a little bit more controversial is that the government takes in money, whether from a carbon tax or whether from cap-and-trade uh, auctions, which we can talk about later, they take in that money and they use it for a specific fund to fund green projects, such as green infrastructure. And that's sort of government earmarking the money instead of giving it back to people. And so this is the idea with a carbon tax, that it's going to be important to use the funds that are raised to actually plow into alternative technologies and means to, 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 to make energy production more, more renewable. Well, that's part of the idea that governments have. But you can argue that by, by putting a, a price on carbon, what you're doing is you're sending an economic signal. You're saying it's going to be more expensive to do things that pollute. So therefore, there's a natural, businesses have self-interest. They want to save money, so, and consumers as well. So they're going to naturally gravitate towards lower carbon forms of uh, energy and, and so on. So the idea is you shouldn't have to have all this, this money going specifically to green programs to make that shift happen. It should happen as the result of prices and supply and demand. But the issue is that as you move towards a green economy, you also need a green infrastructure. Just like we needed to build roads and highways to support car culture, we, we're going to need to build technologies to support uh, a low-carbon economy. So the argument can be made that it's important to put money into that, and that's what a green fund can be used for. But some have suggested that politicians aren't equipped to decide uh, specific green energy development projects that sh deserve their money. So they've said, oh, well, in Ontario, which is going to be making money from the auction of um, 
pollution permits under cap and trade. They're saying, well, the politicians aren't equipped to know like which which projects they should be giving money to. Let the people have this money so they can spend it the way they the way they see fit. And when you say people, you're talking about industry. Tell me about cap and trade. Like, what's the difference between cap and trade and a carbon tax? Uh, quickly, if you can. Sure. Yeah. Well, the system under cap and trade is this idea that the government decides that there's a total limit on how much uh, pollution is going to be allowed, how much carbon can be emitted across the entire province, for example, and that's the cap. And under that system, every different industry has its, uh, every business, for example, has a lim- his own individual limit. And if, an, if a business goes under, it, it's, it doesn't actually need that much, release that much pollution. It has basically a credit. It has leftover um, what do you call it, um, leftover allowances. If another business is finding that it's not able to, to, to go under its cap, it can actually purchase this permission, these permissions, these pollution allowances from other businesses that aren't using theirs. So then that's the trade aspect. And then you crank down the cap. Well, exactly. Over time, the cap goes gradually lower and lower and lower. And the cool thing about cap and trade versus carbon tax is that it actually allows you to, you to can actually know how much total pollution is being produced and actually set your target and set your amounts so you can say overall it's going to go down by x percent in this period of time like you know the government knows this whereas if you if you talk about a carbon tax you don't know that it's just it's just putting a price on carbon so there's not it's, there's no guarantee that the numbers are going to go down by an absolute percentage so so that the advantage of cap and trade basically is it can be very aggressive and that's important when we're looking at meeting goals. Like, for example, Canada committed, the previous government committed to reducing um, emissions levels from 2005 to t- 2030 by 30%. And right now, Trudeau, at the, at the first minister's meeting in Vancouver, was saying that we're going to be exceeding that by 50% by the time 2030 rolls around if we don't change things. Thank you so very much for explaining this uh, complex topic with me, Sarah. We'll have to talk about it again later. Yeah, of course. You're welcome. Uh, Have another go at it. (laughs) For sure. Sarah Aronson is a Winnipeg-based writer and commentator. Oh, 
like my little honeybee. I hear a lot of buzzing, sound like my little honeybee. She been all around the world making honey, but now she is coming back home to me. I recall watching Muddy Waters play and sing Honey Bee in a nightclub in Atlanta back in 1981. The only time I saw the great McKinley Morgan field. Wish I could go back and do it again. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Ever get the feeling that big corporations have taken over the government? In these early years of the third millennium of our modern era, it's almost a truism. Who else would one expect to be running the government in this day and age, if not businessmen and lawyers? The scary news, according to American author Nancy McLean, is that the radical right actually has a stealth plan. Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right's stealth plan for America, recounts the story of the radical right's most shadowy figure, Virginia economist James McGill Buchanan. Buchanan was the guy who inspired billionaire and mega-political donor Charles Koch. I spoke with the book's author, Nancy McLean, by Skype. What was the core political uh, and economic philosophy of James McGill Buchanan, and how did, uh, how did that philosophy come to be... Uh, to be uh, bequeathed to or adopted by by the Koch brothers. What was that philosophy? Yeah, so Buchanan was part of the larger milieu that some people call neoliberal um, and some people call free market fundamentalist, but it came, it was a group of people who came together in 1947 in something called the Mont Pelerin Society, led by the two Austrian economists, F.A. Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, and uh, one American who was actually Buchanan's advisor at uh, the University of Chicago, a man named Frank Knight. Um, Milton Friedman was also part of that group, but he was quite young. He was in his 30s when he went to that founding meeting, and he didn't hadn't made a name for himself yet. But so Buchanan uh, was part of that group. He joined or was invited to join in 1957. He served as president of the organization in 1986, the year he got the Nobel Prize. Um, so he's part of that larger uh, project to, in a sense, you could say, Deal, undo the New Deal in America and social democracy uh, in Europe and, and um, you know, and other kinds of policies elsewhere. But the, this was a group who made a very full-throated case for freeing markets from political control, for deregulation, for an end to government planning, and so forth. Now, uh, Milton Friedman is probably the figure most known to American and Canadian audiences as a member of this effort. And I think of Friedman and Buchanan as being 
the yin and yang of the free market project, if you will. And what I mean by that is that Milton Friedman made a very sunny, positive case for freeing markets, um, uh, and Buchanan uh, was a much more shadowy figure, much less in the public eye, and his particular contribution was to make the case against government, to try to say that government did not do, could not do what it set out to, and he even had a kind of a, a dour um, uh, vision that it was essentially unmasking. He said that when he set to work in the late 1950s, the idea that elected officials served the public interest was dominant, and he he said that's what I wanted. Uh, that's what I wanted to take down. So he wanted to make the case that everyone in public life, even if they claim to be, say, serving the common good or advancing the interests of labor or, you know, African Americans or something, that all these all these individuals were just seeking their own personal advantage. Um, and this school of thought uh, became known as public choice economics, and his particular wing of it became known as the Virginia School of Political Economy. But basically, it it um, uh, provided um, academic imprimatur to the kinds of really toxic anti-government ideas that we see today in, in public life, um, as others have put out crude versions of Buchanan's thinking. And he was very, uh, very um, uh, riled up by what's referred to as rent-seeking behavior. What is rent-seeking behavior? Yes, glad that you picked up on that. Actually, his school of thought was repurposing a term that existed in mainstream economics. So in mainstream economics, uh, people will talk about market actors getting rents. Um, or seeking rents when, say, you try to extend the patent on a particular product beyond its time, right, to make it so that you're claiming additional money that isn't justified by the market. What Buchanan's uh, team did that was distinctive was to say that it was public actors or, or, or to put a focus on uh, public actors that they engaged, that they maintained were engaged in this rent-seeking behavior, meaning using their collective power or their political um, heft to achieve what they could not achieve as individuals in the market. So, you know, I could give you many examples of what they would call rent-seeking, um, but uh, one that you hear said, you know, commonly now is uh, public uh, employees and particularly public sector unions. So if, say, teachers um, uh, engage in the political process in order to increase school funding, Buchanan's people would call that rent-seeking. Or they even applied this kind of thought to public health officials. So there's a Wall Street Journal reporter named Amity Schles who, who actually wrote that after she read Buchanan, she understood why public health officials were so interested in testing lead levels in children's blood, she went on to say, because it justifies their jobs. So in other words, that, that speaks to the kind of toxicity that I was talking about before in the sense that this you know, this is an educated, smart woman who's written, you know, best-selling works, who was on the board of the Wall Street Journal, uh, and yet she thinks that she has the answer to why public health officials would care about 
the damage that lead does to children. Um, and she suggested to her readers that it wasn't because it might cause brain damage or it might do other things like that. No, it was because these public health actors were trying to justify their own jobs and their own income. So, so that um, uh, is what the Buchanan School of Thought sees as rent-seeking. Um, they particularly point to efforts by uh, public actors um, to do things that involve the use of tax revenues. Another example that, again, I think shows um, how this is kind of calcified into a dogma with quite frightening implications for our society uh, is uh, in the area of climate uh, change and climate science. And the Buchanan uh, wing of public choice economics has been very concerned to uh, undermine the authority of climate scientists as they tried to undermine the authority of tobacco researchers before them. So what they will say is that climate scientists are not really involved or are not really interested in saving our planet uh, and the, the various peoples who will be most affected by climate change, but actually they are seeking to get more government grants to attract funding, etc. So it is a really, um, uh, it is a school of thought that necessarily um, casts the, the kind of, uh, uh, engages in kind of the least generous, the most uh, pinched and suspicious analysis of other people's behavior without evidence uh, in order to undermine public purposes that would require the use of government as um, stopping or slowing down climate change does. So how, how has, has, has Buchanan and Koch's Third Century Project influenced uh, the administration of justice in the United States? Yeah. Well, I've never seen, just to be clear, I've never seen uh, Charles Koch or people around him referring to it as a third century project, although I do have um, documentation from Koch and his top political lieutenant crediting Buchanan for um, helping their, for advancing their understanding of the political economy. Uh, but what, I'm glad that you picked up on the legal element because in the early 1970s, uh, Buchanan really shifted toward what he called constitutional economics. Uh, to trying to figure out a, a system of essentially fundamental rules for society, you know, a legal system and a constitutional system, ultimately, that would uh, enshrine the power of the economic minority of unwilling taxpayers, very wealthy people like Charles Koch and corporations, uh, enshrine those to a degree that no society anywhere had ever seen. And Buchanan actually said at several points that by that measure of protection that, that that particular minority, all existing constitutions were failures. So he starts doing this in earnest in the 1970s, and that's also the period when he was getting to know Charles Koch. Charles Koch had joined the Mont Pelerin Society in 1970. Uh, he set up the what became the Cato Institute, was ultimately named the Cato Institute in 1974. Buchanan was connected to that and worked with Koch and attended and led various seminars and such. Uh, but basically, they start thinking much much more about the law and the rules that could be used to kind of pre-bind, uh, to shackle, you could say, democratic majorities. And so I mentioned before that uh, the Chilean uh, interlude is really important in showing them that this can be done with a modern constitution. And so 
um, the Pinochet junta, through its civilian partners, invited Buchanan to Chile in May of 1980 to advise on what became uh, the Constitution of Liberty, they called it, and they got it ratified through a ridiculously um, rigged plebiscite under military rule. Uh, and that Constitution is still in effect today. And in fact, a few years ago, Michelle Bachelet, a president who was elected with um, something like two-thirds of the um, voter support, realized that she couldn't act on the reform agenda that she had um, uh, run on because she said the Constitution put locks and bolts on what elected officials can do. And I think that's really important because Buchanan learned from that experience that you could put locks and bolts in a constitution, and he brought that constitution back to America, and that kind of constitution is now being pushed by the Koch donor network and its allied elected officials and through uh, organizations such as the American Legislative Exchange uh, Council, uh, popularly known as ALEC. They are pushing for a constitutional convention in the United States that would put locks and bolts on what the people can do. So in that sense, the Chilean experience that I write about in Chapter 10 of my book is really, um, you know, as the National Archives slogan puts it, past as prologue. What we saw in Chile is what these, these uh, people are trying to achieve in the United States. And did Buchanan, uh, did Buchanan and, and, his, and his followers have an effect on the, on the composition of, American, of the American court system and on the Supreme Court? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the legal story is really crucial. And I think that's the one that's been most missed in the commentary by journalists on the Koch network and what it's achieved in the U.S. Charles Koch from the early 1970s was investing in these very extreme right-wing legal thinkers. He funded something called the Institute for uh, Justice, which wanted to return the United States to a pre-New Deal kind of 1900-style constitution in which labor unions are not lawful, in which regulation is not lawful, et cetera. It's really a pretty stunning agenda. So there was something called the Institution for Justice and the Institute for Justice. There was also Charles Koch provided seed money later for what became the Federalist Society, which is now the main conservative credentialing society for uh, uh, judges and judicial appointments, including the Supreme Court. So that's hugely important, the Federalist Society and Koch was there from the very beginning. Uh, and another thing that's been very important is the academic field of law and economics. And this was a broader effort, but there was a particular individual named Henry Manny, who from the early 1970s was uh, leading in the creation of that field and styled himself a kind of academic entrepreneur and essentially went out and shook down corporations to get contributions to fund uh, faculty lines and to fund his summer programs. And he would have these summer institutes for justices. They even came, they were so widespread, they came to be joked about is Henry Manny Camp, um, where they would bring uh, judges, sitting judges, to on to you know luxury resorts and uh, tutor them in this law and economics approach, which was a very pro corporate approach designed to say that essentially the costs of doing things that the people wanted done, such as regulating the environment, uh, were higher than the benefits achieved. And Manny was it had the coke money from this for this from the get go. Um, in, in the early 1970s, but was so successful in uh, building in these these um, uh, summer uh, programs and attracting 
judges to them that by the 1990s, by the mid-1990s, two-fifths of all federal judges had attended one of his summer camps, at least one. Um, so that means, you know, 40% of the sitting federal judiciary had been treated to a Koch-funded curriculum administered by this guy, Henry Manny, who was also by then Buchanan's colleague at George Mason University, the flagship outpost of this Koch camp, uh, where he was the dean of the law school and recommended by Buchanan. And the impacts on public education in the United States? Oh, devastating, devastating. And that's actually how I got into this project. I, When I started the research that became this book in 2006, I'd never heard of James Buchanan or Charles Koch. Uh, neither were in the news um, uh, at that point. But what I was following was the story of the state of Virginia's massive resistance to the Supreme Court's 1954 desegregation decision, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, in which this part of the state's package of what it called massive resistance uh, to that Supreme Court decision was vouchers to fund private segregation academies. And I got interested in that because of all the push push for vouchers and and private schooling in our own time. Um, But I very quickly learned that there were free market economists who were pushing for these vouchers, including Milton Friedman uh, from Chicago that we talked about earlier, and James Buchanan and a colleague who had just arrived in Virginia. Uh, And so it was from that that I got on the trail. But now if we fast forward uh, to the present, um, after that work in the late 1950s, what we can see is a public uh, system of of, um, public schooling that is more embattled than it's ever been in our history, uh, where particularly in the states dominated by this radicalized Republican Party, and 30 states now are dominated by this radicalized Republican Party, they are making... um, uh, uh, kind of bloodletting cuts to public education at all levels from um, uh, preschool up through college and graduate schools. Um, and they are, while they are starving public education, they're also changing the rules of governance of public education, and particularly public colleges and universities. And they're shifting uh, public tax revenues off to charter schools that often, as in my own state of North Carolina, have no legal obligation to teach students anything, and some of them, studies have shown, have actually not taught students anything. One study by some Stanford University researchers found that a, a charter school chain in North Carolina that had gotten these public uh, charter, uh, public um, uh, tax dollars had taught students nothing in math in a 180-day school year. They, they had learned nothing in math and very little in English. So um, again, that's why I'm, I have come to conclude that this, this cause has become a, a, a quite deadly dogma, but because of the amount of money invested in it um, and the power that that brings, uh, they are succeeding in transforming our political system in the United States uh, and uh, the policies of some 30 uh, states within the country uh, and our institutions. So it's really, really a time for people to sit up and take notice. And Donald Trump's cabinet, it's, it's a, I mean, you know, American, U.S. cabinets, presidential cabinets have always been kind of dominated by corporate figures, but I think that D- Donald Trump's cabinet must be the most the most blue-blooded corporate uh, corporate group in, in American history. They're all they're all billionaires. 
Yes, that's absolutely true. And corporate people, um, with a, many of them with a long history of uh, shared belief with the Kochs on many of these issues, um, one journalist who'd been following the Kochs for some time has calculated that 70% of Trump's senior appointees come from the Koch network, from its organizations and operations. Uh, that certainly includes the president, Mike, I mean, Vice President Mike Pence. It includes um, the, the White House liaison to Congress, Mark Short. It includes Scott Pruitt at the EPA, Betsy DeVos at the Education Department. You could just go on and on. You know, many, many people uh, come out of this. So, yes, uh, you know, we've long had people with uh, significant wealth who end up in both the Senate and in executive positions, but we've never seen anything quite like this. But I will say also this is a case where part of the problem is that the left and mainstream reporters don't know about Buchanan's public choice thought. They don't, therefore, understand the operational strategy or the end game of what the Koch network is pushing, uh, the transformation they're pushing through our politics, and they don't even understand the vocabulary. So people on you know, in the center and on the left in the U.S. have been squawking that Trump said he was going to drain the swamp. Um, and instead, they say he has, you know, he's expanded the swamp. But what they don't understand is that word means something very different to him and to people in this Coke donor network than it does to liberals. When liberals hear the word swamp in Washington, you know, used in reference to Washington, they think that people are talking, the people using it, like Trump, are talking about, you know, what's called K Street, you know, where all the lobbyists kind of mass and have transformed our politics. But that's simply not the case. For the libertarian right, the swamp is much more, you know, retirees seeking drug benefits, you know, through the American uh, Association of Retired People. It's labor unions, you know, trying to uh, improve working conditions uh, and and get higher wages. It is uh, environmentalists who are trying to get the government to engage in protecting the environment and addressing global warming. That's what they mean by the swamp. So I don't think Trump sees any contradiction in the fact that he said he was going to drain the swamp and that he's appointed all these billionaires. He basically, you know, his vision of the swamp is the, the you know, the citizenry that relies on the government. And uh, to that extent, um, he has actually done a great deal to undermine that and to attack the ability of citizens to exercise control over government um, for things that require tax resources. Definitely, it's an effort to transform America in its third century to, um, to a society that actually, I believe, is ultimately going to be utterly unsustainable, certainly environmentally, but also socially, culturally, and in other ways. And it's being led by people who who had some ideas that were once rich and interesting ideas to think with, but they have since um, uh, kind of hardened into this dogma uh, that they are driving relentlessly through our institutions, and they are quite willing to smash up uh, 
norms of, of governance and operation, academic integrity, you know, standards of, of political behavior in order to rush this agenda through. So it's really, it's, it's quite alarming. And we see that in the, I don't know, you know, to what degree you, you all are following in Canada, but we see that in the two uh, major legislative initiatives of the Trump administration, the health care, the attempt to uh, revoke uh, um, the Affordable Care Act that they call Obamacare. Uh, and now this uh, um, uh, tax bill that, you know, some people are portraying as a kind of atrocity, and I think that's fairly reasonable. Uh, but they, they're doing this, um, they're rushing through these bills that that the majority of the public opposes um, that in a way that is out of keeping with all of our legislative traditions. So they've had no public hearings. They're not doing um, the economic projections on the impact that are ordinarily done. Um, and they're pushing through legislation as they just did, you know, kind of in the dead of night. And, you know, I think the reason for that is that these very dogmatic people have learned from James Buchanan's ideas how to alter the incentive and the punishments for elected officials so that these Republican senators are now more afraid of the right-wing donor network and more eager to get their support uh, than they are the support of even Republican voters. Will the radical rights stealth plan for America be achieved? And, uh, and, I hope and, not. I'm doing everything I can to alert people to it. And if your listeners like what they hear, I hope they will alert people, too, so that we can uh, address this. Uh, our public discourse um, has been so coarsened and debased um, from this aggressive pressure from the right now, uh, which has been coming especially hard since 2009. And I think people can look and see where this is heading when they see things like the rise of white supremacy, you know, like that, that, that the, what Trump has unleashed in kind of the, you know, the, the, um, these demons uh, of, of, of our public life that are appearing in places like Charlottesville um, as people feel both rage that government doesn't seem to be able to do anything for them with the right blocking any effort to address real and pressing needs while you have a, a um, figure in the White House who is actively encouraging and abetting this kind of thought. So it is not, uh, it's not a place where I think the vast majority of us would ever want to live or a, a world that we would want to send our children or grandchildren into. And I believe, based on what I've uh, found in the archives and read in the works of these uh, these uh, coca-lied people, that we don't have a lot of time for this. What's going to happen in the next... I would say like one to five years is going to be absolutely decisive for the next several generations. So anybody who thinks that they can kind of turn the page and, you know, go off and, um, you know, just ignore things and check back in when, when they have a little more free time is, is uh, really missing what's happening because it's an all-hands-on-deck moment right now for the defense of democracy in America. Nancy McLean, uh, author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Thank you so much for speaking with me today on The Green Booze Show. Thank you so much for having me, David, and I love the title of your show. I I hope that you uh, keep expanding your, your audience for these important conversations. Nancy McLean is William H. Chafe Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, her new book, Democracy in Chains, 
The Deep History of the Radical Right's Stealth Plan for America is published by Viking.
Jack Bruce, Eric Clapton, and Ginger Baker, politician. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. 2018 is fast approaching, and with it, endless commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the end of that war that was supposed to end all wars. Here's a story of mine from back in 2014, on the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. I visited the lovely Belgian town of Leuven. In the opening days of the war, Leuven was sacked by the Germans, its famed university library, a treasure trove of medieval texts was torched. A hundred years later, scars remain. Ah, yes, I have pictures, if you like. Marie-Thérèse Delcombe sits at an outdoor café in the Belgian town of Leuven, rustling through faded family photos from the First World War. This, this woman is my grandmother, and that's my mother. And uh, their house was completely destroyed in '14. Marie-Thérèse is old enough to recall her grandfather's story of being placed in a line and every third man shot by German soldiers in the opening days of World War I, a hundred years ago. A priest said, I can take your place because you are married and you have a child. And the priest was uh, shot. And so my grandfather was saved. Marie-Thérèse's faded photos are a graphic reminder of the horrors World War I inflicted here in Belgium. Leuven was one of seven so-called martyr cities laid to waste by invading German troops between August 23rd and 27th, 1914. Together with the nearby towns of Dendermonde and Arschot, Leuven is poised to commemorate those events. Caroline Hellmans works with Leuven's tourist office. Many people know the story of Flanders Fields, but not many people know the story of those martyr cities. Great battlefields, the trenches, that's what people think of when they think of 1914. But they don't think of the martyr cities. Most of them don't think of it. And we, we want to get to people to know that story. And then, of course, we also want people to think of what it must have been like. What if it would happen now? Hellman's and her colleagues have organized a five-day program of cultural events that will kick off on August 23rd. Among them, a performance of this new composition by Flemish artist Piet Swartz, entitled The Sack of Louvain. For those who enjoy a history-packed tour, guides like Guido Klassen will be on hand to explain how and where the Sack of Louvain began a century ago. The shooting started at the railway station and then four days of plundering, looting, uh, terror. And the whole city was, went up in flames. Guido Klassen was trained as an electrical engineer. The 74-year-old retiree is also a history buff. He takes me to where the University of Leuven's 14th-century university library once stood, destroyed by German troops on the night of August 25, 1914. 
these are the people that have been shot here and you see there are two with the cross this one and that one are two priests of that college and one of the, those men he saw that the Germans wanted to set fire and he came to the German soldier and said you know what you do this is the famous library of the old University of Leuven and he has pushed them away and said befehl is befehl and he set fire and so all the books of this library, very old library of the university, 300,000 books, incunabula, um, manuscripts, everything was gone. Of all the acts committed by German troops here in Leuven in August 1914, none sparked as much outrage as the destruction of the university library, home to one of Europe's finest collections of books from the humanist Reformation and Enlightenment periods, including priceless Incanabula, books printed in the decades following Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. 850 Incanabula were destroyed and 1,000 manuscripts. And between 230,000 and 300,000 volumes of, uh, of books. Mark Deretz is an archivist at today's university library, on a tour of the magnificent Gothic building towering over Leuven's main square, Deretz shows me all that remains of the original collection. These are charred books, carbonized books, charred books, um, packed in uh, small glass boxes. Among the precious holdings destroyed in the flames, the university's 15th century charter and an original copy of Andreas Vesalius's monumental work on human anatomy replete with exquisite drawings of the human skeleton and musculature. Thankfully, some gems were out on loan when German troops arrived. An original handwritten by Erasmus himself, not by a secretary, but but there is a signature. Erasmus Rotrodamensis Manu Propria. Written with his own hand, yeah. So here we are going up the tower. The destruction of Leuven's university library was hotly discussed in the late summer of World War I, when German troops shelled Reims Cathedral in France and destroyed the medieval Draper's Hall in Ypres. Germany's reputation as the leader of European science and culture was in ruins. Ici finit la culture allemande. Yeah. This was a, a kind of inscription, and it appeared on the university hall after the war, of course, when the Germans had left the town. And um, since the destruction of, of the library, Germany was labeled not as the culture, as a cultured nation, but as a, a nation of. Uh, Barbarians of savages of the Huns. The Bosch. The Bosch. Did German leaders order their troops to destroy Leuven's university library? This question would be debated for years. Was it collateral damage? Have they set fire to the town and also to the library? Or was it a, a, a wanton destruction, a deliberate act of cultural vandalism? So up to now, I morally I'm convinced that it was um, a, a deliberate act of vandalism. But 
there were no, there, there, we don't have um, a, a real proof in documents. There is no, you know, what I called in, in the Second World War, there is no Führbefehl to find in the archives. So we, we have only a kind of moral conviction and we have only a kind of anecdotal evidence but not the evidence of a, of a written document with, with the order uh, set fire to the library because it's the library of the Pfaffen Universität. There was a strong Protestant and anti-Roman Catholic feeling among, amongst the, the troops, the German troops, which came from the northern provinces, with, which, which came from the northern part of Germany, the Protestant part of It's a very difficult question. C'est le grand-père de papa qui a été pris par les soldats en otage. For Marie-Thérèse Delcombe, sitting at a crowded café in tourist-packed Leuven, the events of a hundred years ago are more than academic. Alors, il a été... She shows me a photo of her great-grandfather digging his own grave, armed German soldiers standing at his side. It's uh, horrible. Uh, it's a horror, the, the war. In the First World, there was 15 million people dead in all the world. And that... I hope this is uh, an example to done, but the war continues so also, uh, in the world. Will this week's commemoration in Leuven and Belgium's other martyr cities help foster a culture of peace? Marie-Thérèse isn't so sure. To, to respect the the people who died and all the things, but uh, it's very touristic. I don't know, and young people don't don't know uh, about it. It's only the old people remember. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>